Well, in, in 1966, there was a musical that gave us sort of a timeless song called The Quest, or The Impossible Dream. Its words are this, dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe, to bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go, to right the unrightable wrong, and to love pure and chaste from afar, to try when your arms are too weary to reach the unreachable star. This is my quest, to follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far, to fight for the right without in question or pause, to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. The song goes on to its chorus. In many ways, uh, the beautiful lyrics and the soaring melody made this an instant classic. And my point is not to talk about this song, but there's something in it that calls us to something heroic, to commit ourselves to something so much bigger than we are. The problem is that our thoughts soar and our hearts engage, and then what happens? We get tired. All the mundane things that go into heroic activities burn us out. We love things that are important and glorious, but let's be honest, everything worth doing takes time and energy, and sometimes the glamour just isn't there. We struggle to do mundane things in excellent ways. It was Eugene Peterson, pastor from Canada, that defined discipleship as a long obedience in the same direction. So how do we persevere doing hard things to achieve excellent results? Well, the Bible does indeed call us to an impossible dream and to fight an impossible fight. And that is our topic for this morning. Please turn with me to Titus 3, if you have your scriptures with you. Titus chapter 3. Because this text is going to call us to live in a way that is impossible for all of us. It really is impossible. But it will also give us the power to live this impossible life. Let's look at this text. Titus chapter 3 will begin in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and show every perfect courtesy towards all people. Wow. Want to talk about an impossible calling? There are so many stories, and they continue to get published, about how polarized America is. This story started to become very popular in around 2014, right? And remarkably, as dire as the, the print was in 2014 and 15, every year America seems to be more fractured. And you'd even wonder how that's possible. And it is. Every time you turn around, it seems like the situation gets worse and worse. Church families and denominations are splintering. Families are dysfunctional. And it seems like the generations just start to drift farther and farther apart. Looking at you baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, and now our new Generation Z. Um, Amazing. And yet... You start hanging out with those different groups, and uh, they don't seem at all like each other. They don't understand each other, and often they don't like each other. So the problem is obvious. 
Okay? It, you don't need me to tell you that the world is broken and that people struggle to get along. Question. The question is, how do you fix it? Well, in First Peter, uh, if you were in our DNA groups this morning, we looked at chapter 2, and it called us to lay aside all malice. Right? The desire to harm one another. How? Well, by laying aside hypocrisy, not misrepresenting yourself on one hand, and also laying aside envy, being jealous um, of what other people have or what they've accomplished. Now, Peter might have just as well said, stop being human. Okay? Because it seems like those traits are just so natural to us. And yet... Can we accept those are exactly the kinds of things that need to happen if we're going to heal? If we're going to move forward in our families and churches and neighborhoods and a nation? So we look at a text like this and we say, oh yes, that's the way forward. If it were only possible, we could only find a way to do that. So today we want to understand the impossible task. We want to find an impossible power. That allows us to create an impossible community. Let's pray and we'll look at our text. Father God, your word is precious and beautiful. And we see your heartbeat for your world. We know the brokenness of our world and our culture and the community around us. We know the dysfunction in our own hearts. And so, Father, our hearts cry out. We beg you to change us. We do offer you our hearts. We want so badly for this to be true. We want to be the sort of people that can invest in others and can love and listen and serve. Be patient. Father, if we're honest, last week that was a significant challenge. Lord, our lives demand that we deal with difficult people and we're not prepared for next week. Father, would your spirit meet with us in this time We want more than understanding. We want to live this. So would you help us to walk in your ways, walk in your word. We'll give you all the honor and glory and praise. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Now, let's start this morning by feeling the weight of this task. Let's not miss any of the nooks and crannies of what Paul is calling us to. I came across this text as I was prepping the DNA material, and I felt really strongly that we should examine them together. Now, if you weren't with us this morning, that's okay. You could catch the little devotional on YouTube, or you could just listen. We'll, we'll catch those themes today. All right, we are two weeks out from a very contentious election. I'm sure that's not lost on any of you, right? Billions of dollars have been spent to keep that on your focus. The sides, of course, are very different, and both are flawed candidates. And so no matter what happens in November, you will most likely not like the outcome. And I don't care who you vote for, and I don't care who's elected. Politicians just have this habit of promising a lot and then disappointing us. It happens, well, every two years. Now, Paul comes to us and says, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people. Wow. So we start with this. Submit to rulers. It is God's will that you submit to government and to be obedient. You will notice that Paul is incredibly compact in his language, and he offers no conditions. 
He just says, this is what you should be doing. Now I can almost hear. I can almost hear the argument. But, 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 right? You don't know our government, Paul. You've never met, you know, Mr. Andrew Cuomo. You've never met President Trump. You've never lived in COVID America. Now, of course, that's true. Paul didn't live in our day. But can I remind you of the reigning emperor in Paul's day? His name was Nero. All right. And government corruption was everywhere. Justice was elusive and morality was almost non-existent. This is the pre-Christian world of Rome. All right. The church has existed for just 30 years. There is no moral majority. There is no Judeo-Christian ethic. This is a world where infanticide was regularly practiced and immorality was so bad that one historian said he didn't really even know any chaste wives. Right? There were no spouses being faithful to each other. Can you imagine? That's the description over your culture. Not good. Now, Christians, of course, were hated uh, not so much for their theology, but for their morality because they didn't live the way their neighbors lived. Now, at the time of the New Testament, then, the problems are similar to ours, but they're worse. Okay? That's beautiful. That's so helpful, because whatever Paul was instructing back then is absolutely applicable for us today. So in a world of corruption and immorality, Paul says we should submit to our rulers. You won't find it in this text, but you'll find it other places. The only exception is when government demands uh, that you renounce God or disobey explicit commands of Scripture. But could we be honest? Those situations are exceedingly rare. And they're very limited. So the expectation we would both submit to government in the next phrase, and this is amazing, that we wouldn't speak evil of it. Are you serious? I am serious. It's exactly what the text says. That's hard to accept. But while we're catching our breath, the text actually goes further and says, be gentle to everyone. Paul says not to speak evil of anyone, but always to be gentle and to be courteous to everyone. (laughs) Now, if we were to take this seriously, I think we'd have to fire all of our journalists, right? And probably all of the public speakers, right? We have this massive problem where we think it really is okay to destroy our opponents, Now, not just to disagree, but to attack them personally. And it's no wonder that culture is a mess. Because if you say anything unpopular, people say, wow, you damaged me emotionally, so I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to banish you from the public consciousness. Now, we feel that. You've been experienced a little of cancel culture in your family or with friends who just said, you know, you believe such and such, so I will have nothing to do with you. Wow. How do you begin to fix that? Well, you can't fix it by fighting everyone you meet. You can't argue that out of people, right? Nor can you angrily demand that everyone just stop being mean. Stop it. Okay? Doesn't work. Not helpful. Not helpful. And then on the other side, if you are alone, if you isolate yourself, you won't be challenged and you personally won't grow. You'll just sit there in your echo chamber, becoming more arrogant and becoming more hostile to people that don't see it your way. You've noticed that, haven't you? In our technological age, it's easy to get only news you agree with. That's a, that's a problem. That's not helpful. All right, in the ancient world, Christianity was new. And, of course, that meant everybody was either hostile or unaware of what you believed. Can you imagine that? So no one was living like you. And that meant every believer was a missionary engaging the culture. Every conversation was a chance for discipleship. 
And nothing has changed. And so Paul's advice is not to stir up arguments. Right? Our culture craves arguments. We pride ourselves that we are not like the ignorant fools around us. And we keep score based on people's belief. Have you noticed that? We actually sort of, we sort of rate people. Well, they believe this, this, and this. That's all pretty good. But they believe that, which makes them, you know, slobbering barbarians. You know, we just, we just sort of tick, um, that was a hallmark of fundamentalist Christianity. And now it seems like it's a hallmark of everywhere. Right? I'm not trying to throw stones, but it was just in this culture where if you didn't believe exactly the way I did, we'd just shove you out. Ironically, the church has pivoted. Pivoted for this moment, and now it's in politics. People wanting to gauge the, the, the worth or religious, you know, the, the merit of people by what they believe, and if they toe the politically correct line or not. Fascinating. Fascinating. The moment says, somebody says something we don't like, we just cross them off our list and they become unworthy of our company. Now I do think this is probably horrendous in our culture, but let's, let's keep it close to home, shall we? Right? Christians say something like, I can't believe she believes it's okay too. If they really love God, they would obviously never do. Go on the blank. And we're kind of passively aggressive about this. But we often shame people and we write them off. Why? Because they don't live like I do. Okay. Now, we might need to pause here. Because you're thinking, well, wait a minute. If I submit to the government, or if I start being nice to people, I'm going to get run over by all those selfish people out there. Right? If I start being kind and everyone else is mean, I'm going to get run over. If you've ever been hurt by an aggressive person, You might be thinking, I'm never going to let that happen again. And so we have armored up, right? We're ready for anything that comes our way, and we don't want to know anyone different than us. We don't want to be tolerant. We don't want to listen to the other side because we already know that there are a bunch of arrogant, immoral pigs who hate America and are secretly plotting to overthrow our way of life. Who says things like that? Both sides. Everybody, right? We just assume that if you disagree with me, it's because you either are just very ignorant or you're evil. That doesn't really lead to productive conversations, does it? We become polarized. Why? Well, I think it's because we're scared. We're angry with those that disagree with us. Now, I just want to remind us that God sent Jesus into a broken world to conquer our need to attack each other. Now, you say, how on earth would that work? Like, I see the problem, and, and we're like various levels. I, I just painted that very black so we could feel it, right? It's like, okay, that needs to be solved, even if you're just on, on the edge of that. Let's go back a little bit in Titus. Let's go back to chapter 2. It says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what is... Paul telling Titus, well, he's saying, you know what? 
The world is very broken. And people apart from God, this is just how they behave. But God sent grace to deliver us from an empty, toxic way of living that hurts ourselves and hurts other people. It's interesting. This text says we are to renounce the old ways of living and to control ourselves to live in ways that show people what the Father is like, waiting for Christ to return and to complete what he has started in our lives. We're waiting for the the culmination of all of that. Now consider what that means. It means that God very much understood how broken the world is. And yet, he didn't want to see the world descend into greater and greater chaos, so God actually stepped into history and is working to restore what is broken in the world And what's his plan? How is he going to fix what's broken in the world? Look around you. His idea is to call out people from every tongue and tribe and nation and to put them in a new family so that we become his hands and feet doing the work that Jesus started 2,000 years ago. He said, that's an incredible calling, but how does it work? I mean, you can't just choose to be nice. I mean, all the people yelling at each other. We're just trying to make it through work and, and life. Could we, just, could we just take a step back and realize that all the people out there who are doing the yelling and the shouting and the hand-wringing, they also are just trying to make life work. They're trying to get through the day, trying to raise their kids, trying to be good citizens. They're doing their best with what they've got. But sometimes that's not helpful. So what do we do? What does the grace of God and his power committed to us help us to do? Well, let's talk about this impossible power. We're back to our text, Titus 3, and let's consider verse 3. It says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul says, I need to remind you something, Christian. Right? You don't get to arrogantly look down on people. I need you to be reminded that this is very much in your fleshly nature. You live this way, and you should really understand how and why. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's your answer. You see it? You see the turn? It has everything to do with but God. When the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, everything changed. There is a new possibility. So Paul explains, hey, you are living empty, futile lives. And we have to accept that reality, that before we knew Christ, we weren't able to move forward. The gospel, and this text in particular, kind of pulls back the curtain and reminds us of how broken our lives were. We hurt people, and we had no way to clean up the mess. We had no way to atone for our failures. And looking forward, we thought, it's not going to get any better tomorrow. We were impulsive. And we lived out of selfish motivations and we could not please God. And we had no power to help other people find joy or lasting satisfaction. Life was empty. 
I mean, we worked really hard to fix it. And it just seems like we kept bumping our heads against the wall. We tried to find joy. We tried to love others. It got hard. This is the interesting thing. We chased passions and pleasures, but we ended up only being enslaved by them. This is the rat race. I think verse 3 perfectly describes American culture right now. Now, I know it's depressing, okay? I didn't come here, I didn't bring you here to to depress you. Um, We're going to find hope in a moment. So what does God do in the middle of this mess? Well, God rescues us. Do you see that in verse 4? Verse 5? Verse 4 explains that when God saw the wreckage of his perfect world, he entered history with goodness and kindness. He sent Jesus to live the life that you and I could not and would not live. Right? Jesus got it all right. All of his relationships were flawless. To God the Father, and to his neighbor, and to his family. He always did what the Father wanted him to do. He lived flawlessly. He earned righteousness. The only one in history to ever do that. But then what did he do? Rather than receiving the reward of his righteousness, he died. To pay for every single selfish, sinful choice that you and I have ever made. And in doing so, he made a way back. He made a way back to God. You see, we couldn't please God on our own. We had no power. Um, But he made a world uh, a way back. Now, we use the word save all the time. But the word means to be rescued and delivered. But notice in our text, it's not rescued and saved um, from hell or judgment. What are we saved from? In this text, well, we're saved from this empty, toxic life that separated us from God and caused us to damage the things God loved, namely his world, other people, and even ourselves. So God's dramatic rescue plan to deliver us from the slavery of sin was to bring us freedom and living the life that he designed for us. And all of this happened because of the mercy of God. We say, well, that's... Amazing, but how does Jesus enter your life? Well, if you, if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll see in nowhere that you have to do anything to rescue yourself, not even pray. You won't find a sinner's prayer in the Bible. Not that it's wrong, we just need to understand the mechanics. We are rescued by the power and mercy of God as we are exposed to the Gospel. So you hear good news and God moves in and calls you to Himself and you respond. God shows us our brokenness and then offers us forgiveness and cleansing. And what happens? Well, God gives us new life and the ability to turn from our old life into a brand new identity. That's amazing. What we're talking about is not small. It's not philosophy like, I believe this, not that. No, we're talking about you were spiritually dead and God gave you new life and new identity and robed you in Jesus' perfection and said, come on, be with me in my family. Come, join me. Now, we want to see how this is happening, right? The text says this is all God's doing. And all we do is we repent. We realize what we're going the wrong way, and we we turn and start going God's way. There's a pastor in Scotland named Tim Chester. He explains it this way. Sin is living life my way for me instead of living life God's way for God. And much of the time, that means rejecting God as Lord and wanting to be our own Lord. But it can also involve rejecting God as Savior and wanting to be our own Savior. 
See, the Pharisees do good works and repent of bad works, but gospel repentance includes repenting of good works done for the wrong reason. As John Gershner says, the thing that really separates us from God is not so much our sin, but our damnable good works. I've read that before uh, to you. The idea is this. Not only do I make a mess of God's world, but in trying to impress God by what I do, God's not impressed. See, we we offer up, hey God, I attend services, and I I give money, and I, I volunteer. And God looks at our lives and says, oh my word, but you're filthy. Right? So repentance is saying, God, I've got nothing to offer you. I, I see in my wake of my life is just broken hearts and damaged relationships and unfulfilled promises. And it's not going to get better. I can neither clean up the mess back here, nor can I live for you going forward. Not without your help. That's repentance. It's saying, God, I've been living for myself and I've wrecked so much. I've tried. I've not completely failed, but... It's a wreck, and I need you to rescue me. You and you alone can bring me back into the family and change me. So we don't offer God excuses for our failures, nor do we expect our good works to make us appealing to God. We cry out, I'm a wreck, but you love me, save me, and transform me to look like Jesus. And this is what God does. He regenerates us. This, this is an incredible promise, all right? Um, it's so much bigger than you think. And if you want a full treatment of this, you need to read Romans 8. Read the whole chapter. It talks about what regeneration looks like. And if you read Romans 8, you'll realize it's not just you. It's not individualized. What is God regenerating? Well, everything. His entire creation. But he's doing it one person at a time. Pastor John Piper explains it this way. So if we put it all together, the picture seems to be something like this. God's purpose is that the entire creation be born again. That is the whole universe will replace its uh, futility and corruption and disease and degeneration and disaster with a whole new order, a new heaven, a new earth. This will be the great and universal regeneration. This is the great universal new birth. That's what we're excited about. That's what we're looking forward to. And if that's true then we're not just looking for an exit saying, boy, I can't wait till I get the check out of this disaster, right? We don't get to wash our hands and say, well, you know what? God rescued me and you guys, good luck. No, we've been given a new sight. We've been given a new nature. We know how messed up the old life was. And now we see with the perspective of Jesus. And what was Jesus' perspective? Well, we engage and we rescue the world and we show them how they can be rescued and renewed by the Father. We are now part of the solution to the corruption in the world. So we run boldly into the darkness. Why? Because the light of God is in us. We resist temptation. Why? Because we know the lies of the culture. We can't be tempted with that. We just know it doesn't work. We say satisfaction is found here in God. Not by pursuing things that ultimately enslave us. So when God changes you, it's the first installment of what God's doing. Right? It's the proof of God's mercy and grace and power. And so like Paul, we are rescued to display to the world how patient and kind God is. So when our culture looks at us and say, how, how in the world does God put up with you? So I hope he does. 
And he meets with me with mercies new every morning. And he's faithful even when I fail. This is what we offer the world, right? We've seen our sinfulness. We know I've never done anything to deserve the kindness of God. What could you possibly do to merit God's continual blessing of life and resources? I could read my Bible for 15 minutes. Is that like a check? You go and say, God, I I deserve your blessing because I served you a little today. Oh, my word. Do Do you realize how generous God is? And he is continually generous even when we're having a bad day. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? So the love of God casts out our fear, and we become secure in the family of God, right? Um, We know we don't do anything to deserve that, and this regeneration, it destroys our pride then. By the love of God, we're not afraid, we're in the family, and we know nothing could happen to put us out of the family. And God is completely committed It's God who's committed to transforming you. And God's infinite power, it's not going to fail. You're not going to get to the place where God says, well, we've done our best, but this is as good as it's going to get. Really? We're the God of the universe here. We're God's workmanship. And you and I will display how good the Father is. Now, our new life in Jesus then opens up a new life that we could have never dreamed of before. Can you picture what's happened You and I, rebels from God, in the middle of ruining our lives, and the king of the universe stepped in and rescued you. But he's got a plan for your life. So what is his plan? Well, it's to restore you to do the impossible. That's our next little word in our text. The word is renewal. If you were to go back to the prophet Isaiah, God sends him and says, I want you to go hang out with a potter. So Isaiah goes down, and here's the potter working on his wheel, and he's making, you know, cups and plates and bowls. And God says, I want you to look at that potter, because the potter gets to make whatever he wants to make, right? That's fair. It's his stuff. And what never happens is the pottery never gets to talk to the potter and say, what what is this? Another bowl? Are you kidding me? I don't want to be a bowl. I want to be a plate like that guy. Pottery doesn't argue with the potter. So when we are rescued out of a life of futility and ignorance and loss, we don't get to set the terms of our own life. Right? Could we agree on this? That if, if there was a flood situation, right? We're all sitting on the top of our houses on the roof, and the chopper flies over, and you know, the guy fast ropes down and grabs you. When you've been rescued, you don't get to tell the pilot how to fly. And let me make some advice. Don't argue with the doctor who's trying to treat you. Right? You were in trouble. They rescued. And... You might ask, where are we going? Right? But they have a definite plan for you. Now, why do I say this? Well, because for some people, they say, well, Christ rescued me, but thank you, God, I'll take it from here. And what's the plan? Well, the plan generally is to go back to this, the shallow dreams that we were living before. Thanks, God, I was really in a fix. Now that I'm back on my feet, I can go back to what I was, what I was doing. Oh, that, that's not, that's not going to work. Right? Can you imagine this? The God of the universe, who created all things, has a plan for your life. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, God is renewing your life through the power of His Spirit that now resides in you. Which Paul is explaining, it's no longer just your life. Christ Jesus is actually living through you. 
So you don't become a puppet. You still have a will. But the Spirit is guiding and directing you and empowering you to live this impossible life of love and reconciliation and uh, service. Another pastor explains this just so well. What's come into your life is the power of a king that will renew absolutely everything. And that means if it comes into your life, everything is going to be different. Your goals are going to change. You're not going to just get help for a sagging identity. You're getting a whole new basis for identity. You're not going to get help towards your agenda. You're going to get a whole new agenda. And before it comes to you, you can't tell what the universe is going to look like when it's inside of you. That means, since it's a lordship thing, since what comes into your life is just not some kind of supernatural help to get you towards your goals, but it's the presence of the king coming into your life now to heal and change absolutely everything about you. Every part of your life is going to be changed. What does that mean? It means if you want to become a Christian, you want to be born again, and you have to at least say, no conditions. Got them yours. I tried the whole living on my own thing. I tried my little plans and dreams, and they they led to misery. Father God, I don't know how to do this life thing, but you do. You've written my entire life in your book. So, Father, I'm yours. You tell me how I should be living. Could I just lovingly say, don't underestimate what God wants to do with you. Please don't be like Moses and say, hey, God, I, I think you've got the wrong person. That's an amazing thing to say to God. To which God replies, I made your mouth. Moses, I know things about you you couldn't possibly know. Don't argue with me. And can you see the God of the universe stepping into this moment in your life saying, don't argue with me. I have such big plans for your life. I have been using everything in your past to prepare you for this moment. You're right where I intended you to be. You say, but I've made so many mistakes. I've got all these flaws and all these scars. Like God's like, I can use that. Don't be afraid. I know your story. And it will not be your strength. It's never been about your strength. But the God of the universe resides in you. Now, that doesn't mean, as you know, that we become superhuman. The amazing thing about God's work is he uses weak people to display his strength. Don't miss the pronoun. All right? How does the Lord display his perfection to the world? Well, he does it by sending weak and broken people back into the world to be humble and gentle and yet fiercely confident that God wants to rescue people from lives of futility. Right? So we don't, we don't promote ourselves. Hey, look at me. If you come to Christ, you can be like me. That's not going to fly. Hey, but would you look at me? And would you look at the kindness that God lavishes on my life every day? It fills me with contentment and joy. I want you to know that too. I see the, I see the frustration in your face. I see the pain. I want to show you where I find help when I hurt that way. There's a father that wants to love you. So everywhere you go, we bear the living hope that God can and wants to rescue every person that you meet. You're not afraid of sin. In fact, people behave badly because you know or uh, you know that God will protect you and that God has the power to change those people's lives. So when you, when you step into people's lives, you say, but they're difficult. You don't know the coworkers. No, God will protect you 
And you also know God wants to rescue them. And you're part of that equation. So we don't shame people. We ought not shame people for how they vote. Rather, we point people to the king of kings. It's above every government. We don't write people off because of their failures or their choices. No, we run to them, offering them forgiveness and cleansing and restoration through the power of God. We listen to complaints. We listen to people worry. And then we offer them living hope. Why? Well, because we're richly satisfied in our Father and we fear nothing. And we love everyone because of what Jesus is displaying through us. Now, at least, I said that as an assumption, didn't I? This is what God wants to accomplish in your life. And I know. My life, your life, we're filled with unbelief. We really doubt that God can satisfy us that well. We doubt that he wants to forgive or use us because of regrets. We don't think that he loves his neighbor, our neighbor as much as he loves us. But when we think this way, it's always wrong. And the Spirit wants to move us from unbelief to belief in all of those areas. We are the, the bearers of good news in our work and in our play and our rest. And we display our redemption. Right? We show how we've changed and grown by how we live. And our words should always be filled with grace. And that leads us to one more turn. This is Titus 2. Because you and I are not big enough to change the world on our own. And that's why God is making us into a brand new community. Titus 2.14 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see that? We are being made into a people, a family that bears the name of Jesus. And what are we doing? We are a family known for being zealous for good works. Yes, the world can ignore one guy or one lady. They might just be outliers. But when you see a bunch of extremely different people hanging out, loving and forgiving each other, well, that's very compelling. That's the gospel displayed for the world to see. The church, the family of God should see, uh, be the kind of place. And the only explanation for it should be grace, the power of God. People should look at us and say, How in the world do you all get together? How does that happen? You say, well, God's healing our hearts and putting down our pride and teaching us to love and forgive and be patient. We are to be eager for good works. This is said, I believe, three times in this text. We thrive on Jesus' work. We're building a community and we're built to serve each other so that every member thrives. See, what you probably are realizing that a true life comes not by being secure in myself, but investing in other people. We die when we're alone. All right? Titus 3.8 in our text says, This saying is trustworthy. And I want you, Titus, to insist on these things so that those who believed in God might be very careful to devote themselves to good works. For these things are excellent and they are profitable for people. What is Paul saying? St. Titus urged people not to waste their lives. Don't argue about politics or Bible interpretation or chocolate or vanilla. Okay, set aside that argumentative life, that self-isolating life, and invest in people and show them what God is like through kindness and forgiveness and love. 
You say, how do I do that? Well, be eager to make people stronger. Jesus, when he was on the earth, remember he, he was walking towards Jerusalem and he could see the city laid out before him. And what did he, what did he see? He saw people and they were wandering like sheep with no shepherd. Now, I don't know if you know anything about sheep, but a sheep left alone will injure itself. It'll likely kill itself. And so when you see people wandering, the sheep's just trying to make life work, looking for a little better grass. That's your neighbor. That might be someone sitting in the pew next to you, trying to find satisfaction anywhere in the world and just getting themselves in greater and greater danger. So how do we respond? When we see somebody stumbling, do we write them off? Oh, well, there goes another one. I guess we'll just do with less sheep. Right? Do we slander them? Idiot. Can't believe they did that. Right? Do we ignore them because they're not like us? Or do we look, wow, that's just way too messy. I, I couldn't possibly get involved in that. You know what? That line of thinking is reasonable if you're asking about your resources. But we're not asking about your resources. We're asking, what does the Spirit of Christ living in you want to do? Through your hands, your feet, your resources. If you know Christ, then you were saved to engage the darkness and to dispel it with the power of the gospel. You get to offer people life and forgiveness and cleansing and new family. So do you see people with this kind of fearless faith and living hope in you? Are you endlessly optimistic about what God will do? Or are you just hiding, hoping everyone leaves you alone? I know that's a spectrum. I do. Okay? But the only reason it's safe to love and serve people, because they will hurt you, is because of Jesus. He will protect you. He will provide for you. He will empower you to serve. He's calling you to invest your life and to expand his kingdom and to spread his fame so that many, many people will be rescued from a toxic, empty life. Now, I know we need to, lo- to close here, but you can't teach what you don't know. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus in these terms, maybe you've had religion. You've been like trying to keep rules. That's not what we're talking about. We're like talking about new life as you've been rescued by Jesus. I would invite you to come to know Christ today. God, I can't live life on my own. I want to give myself to you. You rescue, cleanse, and change me. I would be so happy to talk to you anytime about that. My cell phone number is on the back of the bulletin. and you can find that. Or I'll talk to you anytime. Some of you, you know Christ, but you're overwhelmed or you are profoundly hurting. And this is a difficult message to hear because you're not sure how you're going to get through next week, let alone care for somebody else. I understand. To which case, you have this promise inside of you. Go to the Father and pour it all out and let him put you back together. It's entirely possible. You're not prepared to serve, but you could be. And then for the rest of us, right? Ask the Father how he wants you to serve. Ask him uh, where you should spend this week loving the people who cross your path. You can't reach everyone. God doesn't expect that, but God is bringing people. So would you just ask him for the clarity? Father, who do you want me to serve and how? Let's take a moment to talk to God about this text, and I'll lead us together.
Father God, I'm rather overwhelmed. I can explain these words. I can understand them. But knowledge is not enough, Father. These promises drip with your power. Father, how we need you to show up in our lives. May we be righteously discontent with living lives of insignificance or wasting our time. Oh, Father, may we be bold ambassadors for you. Lord, we beg you to let us live this kind of life. We beg you to let your glory be seen in the choices and demeanor and the personality of our life. Father, there's so much growth we need to do. May your word be like a fire in us that has to be shared, has to be expressed. Or take away the fear, the anger, and the hurt. And we'll follow you, Father. For your glory, for our good. We ask these things in your name. Amen. 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 Amen.